Thank you, Leanne. And uh, yes, good morning. If we haven't met, I'm Mike. I'm the site pastor here at 10th East Van. It's great to be with you. I know it's a long weekend, and so it's just great to, good to be here and uh, worship together. So yes, we're continuing in this series, and I've been really enjoying talking about the paradoxes of Jesus. So leading into this week, I came across two stories of young people, and I wanted to, to start with them. If I told you who they were as adults, you'd immediately know who they were, but I'm not going to tell you who they are right away. They were both born in Europe in the 1900s, and uh, I got interested to what they uh, were attracted to as young people, what they aspired to, and how that led to who they eventually became. In 1910, a girl named Agnes was born in Yugoslavia. And she had a happy childhood with her siblings, and her parents were very involved in the life of church, and they taught her to serve in her community, and that left a deep impression on her. Her life wasn't easy. Her, her father ended up passing away in the war, so she grew up uh, as an orphan. And yet, as a young girl, she found herself fascinated by the stories of missionaries, particularly those to India. So at, at age 12, she was thinking about this. At age 18, she decided actually to move to Ireland, so she could learn English and perhaps, maybe, someday become a missionary. Decades later, another young man named Paul was also born in Ireland. Uh, He lived an ordinary childhood with his brother and parents, and he also faced some adversity, as it was his mother who passed away when he was young, leaving a mark on his young life. When he was about 14, his friend Larry tacked a poster on the high school bulletin board looking for musicians to start a band. Apparently seven guys joined, no one was very good, and eventually there was only four guys in this little struggling band. If you would have seen them or heard them, you would have think, there's nothing here, there's nothing to see. They're, they're just nobodies from nowhere with some guitars in Dublin. But they kept at it. So as young people, both Agnes and Paul uh, wouldn't have grabbed your notice. They were... They were not the least in their societies, but they'd certainly gone through hard times, and they faced struggles, and yet for both of them, the seeds of the gospel of Jesus' kingdom were sown deeply in the fabric of who they were. They both aspired to see God's better things happen in a hurting world, and they both rose to very different forms of greatness in our world, and in them, though, I see, I see similarity of what we're going to talk about today. Because today we're going to talk about leastness and greatness in the kingdom of God. We'll talk about people who are obscure but become great in some way. And we'll also talk about people who are are great in some ways but sort of fall from, from that greatness. Our society is really obsessed and attracted to, to greatness, and we, we assume that it's, it's, you have to be influential, powerful, have a lot of money. Our society tends to uh, assess your worth by your net worth, right? Our, our appearance, our, our education. But Jesus said these timeless words, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first, So as I said, we're in this current series of paradoxes. And this is a paradox because it's like a reversal of our expectations, right? In our world, we think, well, those who are first are first. And and unfortunately, those who are last are last. And I happened to be chatting with Matt before the service. And he, as he does, he he brought up how, you know, last year, 
The Canucks were like last. Now they're first. I mean, I didn't want to reverse it on them because, hey, you know, if you're first, watch out, you might be last, but we won't go there. <laughs> so in, in, in our world, in God's world, sometimes this happens, and it's, it's something, it's a lesson about God's kingdom to come, but it also is a lesson about what we see in front of us right now. So there's two Bible passages I want to dive into, and the first one uh, comes in Matthew chapter 18. So you can, you can see it on the screen. Let me read it for you. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So he called a little child to him and and placed the child among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So multiple times in the gospel, it's so interesting, the disciples openly ask Jesus, so who, okay, who's going to be the greatest? They're, they're really focused on this. One time, even one of the disciples' moms pulled Jesus aside and said, hey, could my, could my sons get the, the two top positions? So it was so entrenched in their world as it is in our world that greatness is equated to notoriety, high positions of power, status. They saw it in their, in their political leaders, in their business leaders, in And we see it today, don't we? It's all over the place. That if you have the right connections, you can claim advantages. If you hold high positions, you can be someone who is admired. So then what does Jesus do? He responds to their probably naive question with a total reversal of the human value scales. He brings a child into the circle and says, unless you become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's, it's shocking language, and, and Jesus sort of does that in his teaching. Because as a, in the Jewish society, uh, a, a child was, was nobody. He was someone to be looked after, not someone to be looked up to. One author said it like this. He said that Jesus is giving them a radical reorientation from the mentality of the rat race of image maintenance and status-seeking to an acceptance insignificance. So here, I think Jesus is not merely teaching somehow, oh, let's take the positive attributes of, of children, maybe their gentleness or their humbleness, though if you have child, you, you know that that's not often true. Uh, in fact, I think what he's doing, he's actually focusing on adopting the low status of children. That's, that's what he's advocating. He's saying that true greatness is found in being little, True greatness is found in being unimportant. This doesn't make sense to us. Uh, Jade, Pastor Jade, you may, you may know him. At 10th, he, he was recounting a story to me about a woman named Margaret McIver. Has any, did anyone ever meet Margaret McIver? Yes, I think if you've been around, you've met Margaret. So Margaret uh, was someone that Jade met in 2005 when Jade was new to 10th, and Jade had his own little children. And what stood out to her is that Margaret, a woman in her 80s at that time, was so committed week by week to coming to the mom's group, just so she could hold the babies, so that the moms could enjoy the rest and refreshment of having being cared for in that way. So many families were, were blessed by Margaret's love. 
And in that same era, Jade was the youth pastor of 10th. And uh, at that time, they were receiving youth volunteers from the UK. And these volunteers needed cheap housing. That's never been easy to find. So what did Margaret do? When she heard that, that these volunteers needed housing, she opened her home. And for two years, she housed young people in her home while in her 80s to bless the youth ministry. Then in 2014, when when Pastor Jade launched this fellowship, 10th East Van, he was surprised that Margaret joined the launch team. And it surprised her because this this group used to meet at 5 p.m. And Margaret, being in her maybe later 80s at that point, you know, going out at 5 p.m. into the evening wasn't easy. But she sacrificially said, no, Jade, this, I want to commit to a church plant. And And so she did. So what I see in Margaret is someone who didn't make the headlines, someone who didn't garner success in the world's eyes, but through the portrait of Jesus's values, Jesus's kingdom, Margaret was a great person. She served faithfully and quietly in the background. Have you met heroes of faith like this? They can be pretty hard to spot because they purposely don't stand out. And in fact, I think Many of you could be well on your way to being this kind of person of faith as you humbly serve. So keep going. You probably won't know you're doing it, but you're probably doing it. Keep going. Keep sharing your advantages with those who have no advantages. Your resources with with people who have none, no matter how much you have. Margaret's uh, life, I think, illustrates a principle in in a book I'm, I'm loving reading. And it's part of a course I'm in right now called Emotionally Healthy spirituality. In that book, the author Pete Scazzaro outlines a number of principles that he says if if we don't take note of these principles, we're on our way to a spiritual train wreck. One of the principles is the lie that you are what you do. No one says this to us in the world, but subtly we we imbibe it. Suddenly suddenly we, we agree with something like what we do is our identity. Pete Schizero calls that a lie, that your worth, your identity is measured in the tasks you do, Uh, tasks that the world deems important. And then here we have Jesus calling us to take on tasks, take on roles that are unimportant, that that are of low status. Purposely taking on a low status for the sake of God's kingdom is what Jesus himself did. We we read about it in Philippians chapter 2 where it says he took on the very likeness of a servant to serve. The God of the universe taking the form of a servant. And we saw it in in the artwork, washing the feet of the disciples. These are the marks of God's kingdom. So in Margaret's life, I'm certain that possibly even this passage, this story of of receiving children, probably what inspired her. Somewhere in her identity was was a Jesus-shaped aspiration to be a low-status person for the sake of his kingdom. Uh, I'd like to look at a second story. This story is more of, as Jesus does, a bit of a warning. Same principle, but a a warning of of what not to do. So it's a famous story. You've probably read it. If you've been around church in length of time, it's the story of Jesus warning the rich man. It goes like this in Matthew chapter 19. A young man approached Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Good question. Jesus replies, If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. All these I've kept since my youth, the young man said. 
what do I lack? What one thing do I still lack? So I think this man, in his view, he'd done well. He'd, he'd kept the Ten Commandments. He'd, he'd sort of pursued holiness. But it's so interesting. It, it's like he still has this nagging thing in his heart. I just know there's something missing. What one thing do I lack? And Jesus offers him this sort of bomb-dropping assessment. He says, if you want to be perfect or godly, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he turned away and went away sad because he had great wealth. Like the disciples would have been stunned. You know, we're stunned. What does this mean for us? So then Jesus turned to the disciples and said, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, who could be saved? And Jesus looked at them and says, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So again, the the disciples are stunned and they said, but we've left everything. He assures them that that, that their uh, fortunes will be reversed. And then he finishes with the famous saying, he says, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. So again, it's it's a very difficult teaching. It rubs us the wrong way. So we have to ask, is Jesus being unreasonable with the man? Does he really want to call this man to to give away his wealth to follow him before following him? We can understand why he would walk away sad. I think what's going on here is well described by one of Pete Scazzaro's uh, other principles in the book. It is that the lie that you are what you have, right? He says in his book, he says, when we're self-focused rather than God-focused, we take on the nature of what uh, Christian history has called the false self. And there's nothing more the false self loves than to clothe ourselves with, with things that help us feel powerful. And the problem, though, is these same things take center stage in our life. And instead of us owning them, They, in turn, own us. And I think this is what he wants to save the man from. So to make his point, he he uses this sort of wild example of a camel, the the largest of animals in in their sort of known world, going through the eye of a sewing needle, the smallest of human-manufactured holes. And so I think scholars, from what I read, agree that he's probably saying something intentionally ridiculous, possibly even trying to be funny, that he wants us to grasp that it's utterly impossible for us and our wealth and our status to achieve God's kingdom with our own version of greatness. We can't buy it. We can't earn it through our own merit. And in fact, our financial wealth can lie to us and become a significant barrier that blocks our desire to surrender fully to God. So, so we here in the Western world, I think, are, are, it's good for us to read this stuff and, and say that we're, we don't often think of that as a barrier or a spiritual roadblock. But Jesus is saying, think about it. Full surrender. Full surrender would be like a rich man giving away his possessions. And I think Jesus meant it literally and figuratively. You know, he himself left his father's carpentry business to do God's work. His followers left fishing, fishing businesses of their fathers and they followed so all through history, there's, there's been examples of different kinds of leaving and sacrificial choices. Uh, 
in their culture. So I want to ask, what happens if we don't heed this warning? What happens if possessions do take center stage in our life? Over the last two weeks, a CBC News article kept popping up in my feed, and it was a story about a a young man in Canada named Robbie Clark. Uh, He's sort of risen to become a bit of a famous and now infamous sort of real estate mogul in in Ontario. And so apparently back in the 90s and early 2000s, Robbie had been in some, some YTV sort of Canadian sort of dramas, that was it called uh, the Zach Files. I hadn't heard of it. I had heard though his brother was in uh, Degrassi Junior High. Maybe you've watched a little Degrassi. So this was in Robbie's family, acting and. and but apparently, by his twenties, in Robbie's case, any money he'd earned through acting and his leads of acting had dried up. So he began investing in real estate. And through uh, somehow attaining a number of loans and liens through dubious, sometimes means, um, he owned up to 800 properties. So the the problem started to happen, though, is that uh, many of these properties, some were derelict, some were uh, abandoned, and somehow then loans were not being paid, payments were not being paid. So CBC reports, though, at that, at that same time when probably the business was starting to crumble, uh, Robbie was doing a lot on social media to sort of bill himself as this sort of almost billionaire and sort of traveling with the yacht going club and uh, giving all sorts of financial advice. All while things were crumbling. Sadly, it seems that it's all imploding around him and he may be heading for bankruptcy. So I don't know what's going on internally for Robbie, but probably words of Jesus might sting a little that many who are first will be last. And perhaps he may have spent all his life trying to guard himself against feeling last by looking like he's first. Jesus wants to save Robbie, us, and the rich man in his story from this kind of false allure. Thomas Merton was a a Catholic Christian writer in the 1900s with with many helpful things to say about the false self. So I really liked this quote. He said this, When our false self dominates our drives in life, we wind experiences around ourselves. We cover ourselves with pleasures and glory like bandages. As if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covers its surface. But there's actually no substance under the things with which I'm clothed. I'm hollow, and my structure of pleasures and ambitions has no foundation. And when they're gone, there'll be nothing left of me but my own nakedness, emptiness, and hollowness. I think what Merton is saying is that when our our false self takes charge, we we sort of cover ourselves in temporary comforts. And we do it because it feels good. It gives us that that short-term boost of feeling a little bit better. But we miss out on true life if that's the source of life we're trying to live from. And so, like the rich man, we we can turn away sad from Jesus. Possibly like Robbie, sort of with his crumbling financial kingdom uh, on loaned money. Jesus wants to save us from this false way of image management. So as we sort of move kind of towards the end of the sermon, I want to begin asking, what would be one false layer Jesus may be inviting you to consider removing? Uh, Perhaps you have 
coming to realize that maybe defining yourself by, by what you have and what you do is very important in your life. You know, as, as a fellow parent, I know that sort of parenting in a way that can look like great parenting because our kids go on to great things is really an allure, especially in a city like this. We know in our careers there's a real hustle and grind to sort of be this thing that we're never quite there. So it's God revealing you to you something that he might be inviting you to seek freedom from. The, the Pray As You Go devotion, which I tend to listen to quite a bit, said this this week. He said this. There's a paradox involved in following the way of Jesus. That thinking and acting out of self-preservation is counterproductive while risking loss of status, power, and security can lead to the grace of complete inner freedom. How do you feel when you think of this, they ask. Well, how do I feel? To be honest, it feels risky. To pray like this, to act like this might actually cause me, might cause us to descend towards leastness and lastness. So it made me think of a, a time I could really relate to this. In, in 2017, I'd been working for a, a university campus ministry called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I've been working for them for about 10 years at that point. And so it's, it's good work, but very relational, very busy. I was out all the time. And it just so happened at that time, 2017, my wife, Clianza, was making a move to go back to nursing school. So it was, uh, we had some young kids, it was going to be a busy time, and I, realizing that you know, I was overdue for a sabbatical from the organization, I was tired, I was burnt out, they gave me a six-month sabbatical. So the first six, uh, six months, you know, for the first few days of that six months, just felt amazing, glorious, like all the time, what will I do? But then a couple weeks in, I noticed that I was struggling with low moods a low sense of self. And I just thought, what's wrong with me? I've got all this time to, to help my family. What's wrong with me? Looking back, though, I can see that God used that as an important time to examine my life and see the lens I was actually living through. Because without knowing it, I didn't know these categories at that time. I, I think I was being, my life was defined by, by you are what you do. Suddenly, I didn't have a, a job to busy myself with. I wasn't getting any public kudos that you might in, in, in a ministry job or any job. I instead spent days at home cooking, cleaning. I volunteered at my daughter Treya's school with the other moms on snack days. I uh, helped my son Callan deliver after-school papers. These are memories I really treasure now, but at that time, in that current state of mind, my mind was sort of going on, on different paths. I wondered, like, oh, no, are the, are the neighbors going to think I've lost my job and I'm out there, like, using a paper route to sort of struggle for some money? And, and what is my career anyways? I'm, I'm 40, in my 40s now, and I am, I'm still working in ministry, student ministry. This is not the kind of career move that others my age have gained. So I was really struggling, and I, I think I was becoming aware that I was defined a lot by... You are what you have. So these, these six months away from the, from the rat race really forced me to painfully to, to dig deep, to look deep. Who am I really when there's no job to prop up my identity? When there's no ability to go out and earn gobs of money to sort of amass some kind of self-identity? And through it all, God began changing me. He sort of showed me the, the treasure of spending more time with my kids. And if it was I don't know, if you're progressing along in your life and if you've had kids, I'm at this stage where like, if there's one thing I could go back and do 
differently. I just hang out more with my kids. We do the goofy things that maybe at that time I felt often too busy to get into. Just a little life hack there. Do that stuff. I learned that slowing down and being humble was a real treasure. I learned that being part of my neighborhood and actually knowing my neighbors rather than just being a busy workaholic and rushing out is a real treasure. So again, as we get towards the end, I want to turn back now to the the two stories I started at the beginning of Agnes and Paul, figure out uh, who they are, how their aspirations helped them aspire to be part of the least and last in God's kingdom. So after arriving in Ireland, Agnes made a decision to join a Catholic order of nuns. And these, these nuns happened to work in India. And by 21, there she was. She was working. She was teaching uh, the poor children. And she was increasingly alarmed by the dire, dire poverty in Calcutta. So you won't be surprised to realize that the woman I'm talking to, I'm talking about, became Teresa, Mother Teresa. And so you look at her and you think, well, of course she's famous. The whole world knows who this woman is. And yet, Mother Teresa did not uh, gather her fame by becoming rich or seeking influence. In fact, her, her humble, tireless, uh, uh, insignificant, seemingly work in India started to spread around the world. She was given chances to help children in poverty in all sorts of countries. And to today, there's uh, over 500 missions of charities operated in 100 countries. So I found it so interesting that I think it was her, her child aspirations to serve the least and the last that actually led her to become one of the world's least and last. And that, in fact, it, it ironically garnered global attention and even a Nobel Prize. So I think in her case, sometimes taking that path, not always, and maybe not even frequently, sometimes the world does sit up and notice and, and that kind of leastness is admired as greatness. What about young Paul? In the case of Paul and his high school friends, their passion for music combined with passionate lyrics about all the social needs, problems in Northern Ireland at the time. And in 1987, they released my favorite album of all time, Joshua Tree. So Paul's adult name is Bono, and he's part of the band U2. Any U2 fans here? So you might be wondering, okay, Mike, we talked about Mother Teresa. Why are we talking about Bono? being anything near to least and last. It might, it might even be heretical. Bear with me for a minute. Because in his rising success, I actually see a commitment to use his influence to highlight the plight of the least and the last, to use his money to, to lift up those who are in dire poverty. I heard him say once in an interview how ridiculous he feels that he's this, this millionaire worth like 700 million just for singing songs. Well, well mothers around the world can't even feed their children. So he gets it. In 1986, he joined the Live Aid effort and and started charity work in Ethiopia for education. In 2004, he co-founded a nonprofit called One, and they work on global poverty, and they they engage lobbying government to sort of elevate those from poverty. So these two people might seem larger than life, and yet I think their example uh, is uh, of what Jesus is talking about, and including Margaret's example. They beg us to ask the question, what path of God's kingdom greatness might you be missing because of mistakenly focusing on the world's standards rather than God's standards? Again, pray as you go, said it this way. Jesus confronts his disciples, that's us, 
with unexpected and uncomfortable truths about himself. They haven't picked the winning side. Being his followers is the opposite of status and grandeur that they had hoped for as disciples of the Messiah. But risking loss of status, power, and security can lead to the grace of complete inner freedom. I love that. So as we conclude, I I wanted to think about just three ways that I think lead us on Jesus' path of leastness and lastness so that we can become among his first and great. First, I want to encourage that we can examine our aspirations. We might have to even go back to our own childhood to say, God, what was, what was so important in my heart that I maybe have forgotten? So maybe this can happen through prayer, through reading, through praying with someone after service, talking with friends, and inviting the Lord to reflect on, Lord, is what I, what I do or what I have, is that taking center stage? So we can examine our aspirations. Second, we can seek to unravel the bandages. Maybe we become aware that the things we have or do are wrapping around ourselves and shielding us from being the true self. And in fact, it's our our false self and our our ego, if we're honest, that is guiding our lives. And this could involve reorienting what you do. It's amazing how being a generous person, uh, particularly if you have time, resources share, that these kind of generous lifestyle, generous acts will actually reorder our priorities, and reorient our heart towards God. There's hope for us. Third, we can keep on going. I hope, as we've talked today, I hope that many of you recognize positive attributes in you, that you are on this path. I want to encourage that. I see that in you. But you might be living that way, and you might be feeling unseen, unappreciated. I just want you to encourage you, hold on, keep going. Live for that audience of one. Of Jesus. Live for that, that he, knowing that he sees you. He sees all these acts that no one sees. He sees your heart aspiring towards this kind of life and just embrace that joy. And let's be honest with Jesus when it's difficult. So this, I think, is, is how we embark on this path with Jesus. So as we finish, I want to lead us into prayer. And even again, as I pointed, I wanted to direct you to prayer. Wanda will be praying with people after the service. This could be a morning to turn towards Jesus' path of firstness and greatness as we take his path of leastness and lastness. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, again, today your, your words shock us, humble us, uh, call us out in a good way. Lord, you always... You call us out in good ways because you see us at the heart level, even when we don't see it. You see our aspirations. You see our motivations. And Lord, would you meet us this morning as we continue to worship, as we take communion, as we pray? Would you meet us and change us and cause in us a great desire to take your paradoxical downward path? Thank you, Jesus, for your wisdom and your goodness. In your name I pray, amen.